God, thanks so much for all that you're doing in and through everyone here. Thank you, Lord, for um, bringing Spark together this Sunday evening. Thank you for the many things that you've been doing in our lives. And now, God, we just pray that we would pour out our lives to you, uh, Jesus, that we would seek your face and learn your ways and how to love and to um, build your reputation in our community. So teach us tonight, pour out your Holy Spirit on this place and in our hearts. Bind us closer together as you bind us closer to you. And preach a word this evening that blesses all of us um, and teaches me as well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We are on reputation, and if I were to identify one primary discontent in my life, I don't know if you've ever heard of Bill Hybels from Willow Creek, but he talks about figuring out your calling is figuring out what you're most discontent about, what you just can't stand anymore. Like, it makes you so angry, you can't stand it, and you have to do something about it. So if you figure out your your holy discontent, then that might indicate your calling. My holy discontent, as much as I wish it were something really, um, like, incredibly awesome, like, you know, I can't, like, Mother Teresa kind of discontent, like, just can't stand the fact that there are children hungry on the streets of Calcutta, and I'm going to go live my whole life. I mean, that seems like that should be my holy discontent, and I am discontent about that. But the thing that drives me bonkers where I start to sweat and my face gets hot and I get really upset is when people speak poorly about God. Um, When people on television or in pulpits or in books seem to misrepresent or misunderstand God, this God of love that I know, and then we start to talk about him in ways, and it makes me sweat. Um, Bad teaching makes me sweat. And um, I know sometimes I'm guilty of it myself, but I don't have to listen to myself all the time. But um, when I am in other communities, and sometimes, I mean, there's great teaching, and then one time I'll set up there and I'll hear something like, well, the God of the Old Testament, dun, dun, dun. But then the God of the New Testament, la, la, la. And then I'm like, ah! and I start to sweat. So um, that it's a problem. It also happens um, after I go to Israel, and then I'll meet other people who've been to Israel, and they'll say to me something like, wasn't it so powerful to sit in the upper room where the Last Supper was? And I start to sweat, because I know that they actually didn't sit in the upper room, because that is a mosque, and the upper room is probably maybe several feet underneath that, and that they sat in a mosque, and that's quite lovely, and maybe they were in the general area, potentially, of the upper room, but Jesus didn't leave a tab, right? Like, it wasn't, you can't go there and meet the waitress that served, right? I mean, it's, it's, things have been built up, and when they tell me this, I don't want to disabuse them of this beautiful experience they had, but I also start to get a little bit sweaty, because I feel like that actually hurts the reputation of God, because at some point, they're going to meet somebody who knows that they sat in a mosque, and not in the upper room, And then the faith, our faith gets damaged by that false teaching. I don't know if that makes sense a little bit. But then it's like you're believing in something that's not quite real. Um, Maybe you had a real experience there that was meaningful to you, but that's not the space. And so I really try to attend to those details. That's what, when we start to talk about reputation and God's reputation, um, I care desperately about how we study and how we speak about God and what happens. Because I think a lot of times our image of God is this. Right? Like, particularly when we talk about God of the Old Testament. Have you guys watched The Simpsons? Have you ever watched, you know, like, or there's a book out called The Gospel According to the Simpsons. Um, did you ever notice that if you watch The Simpsons, God always has five fingers, whereas the rest of the characters only have four? Um, it's one of the things the artist put in. Yeah, God gets five, a whole five-fingered hand. But every other character on The Simpsons only has four fingers on their hand. 
And God is sort of like this big booming voice, and he and Homer are having a conversation about how Homer doesn't want to go to church anymore because the sermons are really boring. And God says, I couldn't agree with you more. I'll give that Reverend Lovejoy a canker sore. And then Homer says, give him one for me too. And they kind of joke about it. But at least there's this image in our heads. Did anyone else grow up with that image of God, the Father, being on a throne with a big white beard? Yeah? Anyone? Yeah, okay. And, and really, let's be honest, he's always white, right? So, I mean, he's, he's white. He's an old white man. He's a little like Santa except scarier. Um, and so when we start to talk about God's reputation in the world, we start to talk about how he's kind of mean and grumpy. This author, um, this French author, Jules Renard, said, I don't know if God exists, but it'd be better for his reputation if he didn't. Um, and he means by that that God, in his mind, isn't doing the things that he thinks God should be doing. So it's better if God doesn't exist, because for him, in his argument, if God did exist, then he has to figure out why God allowed a tsunami or an earthquake or a superstorm or whatever. Have you started to hear people talk about God in this way, where they feel like there's this mean God of the Old Testament, um, this, this God, even a mean God of the New Testament, and they're trying to reconcile some of that. We have Richard Dawkins talking about God this way. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. He does not like that God. And notice he says the God, uh, he's the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Um, which indicates God, Richard Dawkins, who is, you know, very proud atheist and very popular. You've heard of this book, have you not? The God Delusion? It's on all the shelves. It's on the New York Times bestseller. And his view of God and the God of the quote-unquote Old Testament is pretty, uh, it's a pretty popular view. Maybe it's even something that you've heard Christian pastors talk about. Oh, the God of the Old Testament is sort of mean and grumpy, but then the God of the New Testament is quite lovely. Here's something that I found in terms of the reputation of God in our community from an atheist website. In the Old Testament, God is, his nickname's I Am, but in the New Testament, his nickname is Love. And his personality, I think both of these, by the way, are kind of twisted. Um, his personality is anger, jealous, and bitter, and loving and forgiving in the New. Um, and his deeds in the Old Testament, according to this person, is flooded world because of sinners. And in the New Testament, it's healed sick and gave up the son for sinners. And then the task for prophets is to lead the chosen people out of oppression or oppress the weaker sex. Okay. Um, And then the greatest commandment is cut off thy foreskin and then love thy neighbor. Um, And the whole thing is so messed up, right? I mean, you guys learned that love your neighbor was from Leviticus 19. So here we have somebody who's suggesting that that only shows up in the New Testament rather than knowing that it was first in what we call the old. And so you have this conflict, this reputation of God where he is sort of maligned. And every time I hear somebody speak this way about God, whether it's Richard Dawkins or whether it's some other group online, the thing that drives me crazy is that I know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if we're reading our text in that way where we feel like God is mean and grumpy and all of a sudden becomes nice 2,000 years ago, then we've actually decided to believe in two different gods. Because we've decided to believe in a God whose character has somehow changed when we know that he is unchanging and when he's consistent. And by the way, if you believe that his character changes, then why wouldn't he change it with you and me now, 2,000 years again? 
Can you trust a God who you think treats people differently um, based upon whether or not he's angry and then loving? Or maybe it's possible that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that he has been consistent in his character. And maybe because we hear God of the Old Testament is mean and grumpy and nasty, we read it that way even though it actually doesn't say that. So I thought what we could do is pick a passage in Exodus 32 where we might feel like God's a little bit mean and grumpy and angry. And let's try to understand it in the larger context of our story. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 32, and we're going to start in verse 7. Now let me just explain a little bit of what's been going on here. Moses has gone up onto Mount Sinai. God's redeemed and rescued his people from Egypt. By the way, how many people have you? How many people have heard here? Um, God of the Old Testament is a God of you know law, and a God of the New Testament is a God of grace. Have you heard that? Yeah, that's completely false. And every time somebody says you should just plug your ears and go, ah, yeah, it's not true. The reason why I know it's not true is because the Bible actually tells me so. When God redeems, rescues His people out of Egypt, do they have the law? No. So rescue, redemption, grace, salvation, love all occurs before they go to Mount Sinai and get the Torah. Oh, so we've already started to go. Does that sound new? Is is that new to anybody? Like, I never thought of that. That God rescued and redeemed and loved and saved prior to them receiving the Torah. That's truth. And yet somehow we haven't learned that. Somehow we think that this list of rules is what characterizes the Israelite people, and then Jesus shows up and introduces grace. But it's simply not true. Grace existed because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because we are good Trinitarian Christians, which means we believe in one God fully expressed in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, meaning that they all pre-existed before time before the world was made, before the garden. So now all of the the Godhead, the Trinity, is expressed fully throughout all time. So if Jesus is full of grace and mercy and love, then we would expect to see grace and mercy and love fully demonstrated prior to Genesis 1 and then through the text. Does that kind of make sense? All right, we're all together. So here we are, Exodus 32. God has redeemed and rescued for free the Israelites, just because he loves them and because he made a promise. And now they've camped out at Mount Sinai. And while Moses is up on Mount Sinai, hanging with God, getting the Ten Commandments and hanging out, there's some problems down below. Yes? Anybody remember what's going on? Golden calf, right? Yeah, exactly. Something, Something bad is happening. Okay, so God points this out to Moses, right? So the people at the beginning of 32 see that Moses is a long time coming down. And then God says to Moses in verse 7, The Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people, uh uh-oh, whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who's brought you out of Egypt. 
I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They're stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I may destroy them and then I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, if it was, it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And then the Lord relented, and he did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Okay, so this sounds like a pretty nasty passage, doesn't it? Like if you're trying to prove to somebody that you think God is really mean and grumpy in the Old Testament, then you would say, hey, let me show you this passage where he threatens to kill all the people, right? And God is like, I'm ticked. They're doing this bad thing down below. Let's kill them all. Moses, you're my man. But if we look closer, we're going to start to pay attention a little bit to what God is actually doing here in the text. And maybe it just might read a little bit differently when we stop for a moment. So let's look again. The Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. Now in that first sentence, what is God saying to Moses? Is what he's saying to Moses true? Are they Moses' people? No. And did Moses bring them out of Egypt? No. God did, right? So the rabbis talk about how as this dialogue between God and Moses starts, that God is actually cueing Moses to start to argue on behalf of the people. So when we read this passage, we're just like, wow, God's angry, and then Moses just freaks out, and then God's like, okay, well, fine, whatever. But when you read it in the Hebrew— And when you start to pay attention to the pronouns, you're going to see that God actually, though angry, and righteously so, isn't he? He's just pulled them out, and it's really, and this is a larger teaching, but this covenant at Sinai is very much a wedding ceremony. It's like a marriage that the people of God are being betrothed to God himself. And on the wedding night, the bride is sleeping with the best man. I mean, they're committing adultery on the wedding night with the golden calf below. If you were God, you wouldn't even ask Moses if it were okay to kick those people out. Like, if God were made in our image, right, we'd be like, and done. Seriously, think about your wedding night, and if on your wedding night, if you're, or think about the one that might come someday, and on your wedding night, you're sitting there, and you find out that your fiancé now spouse is out in the back sleeping around on the wedding night, what's your response? It's over, Right? Miss Tina's making a gesture in the back. So, I mean, it's done. And God says, let me cue Moses to have a conversation with me about this. And we're going to find out a bit about God, and we're going to find out a bit about Moses. So go down, because your people, Moses, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, made themselves an idol in the, ca- in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it, sacrificed to it. These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They're a stiff-necked people. Now, just really quick, that phrase, these people, goes back to the beginning of Exodus 32, where the people say, that Moses, in Hebrew, that Moses is up there. So it's like God's listening. (laughs) These people, 
not my people, not your people, but he kind of imitates their slander down below. And they're stiff-necked. And then in the Hebrew, God says, let me. He says to Moses at this point, he doesn't say, I'm going to. In Hebrew, he says, let me. Let me allow my anger to burn against them so that I can destroy them. Let me do it, Moses, and then I'll make you into a great nation. Have you ever known that God is actually cueing Moses to intercede? He's cueing him to start to understand that he has a role here, and if he's going to be the one that leads his people through the wilderness, he's going to have to be pretty patient. And he's going to have to be the kind of guy that argues on behalf of God's people, that takes up for them all the time. So he says very clearly, let me, let me. And God starts to cue Moses to have a dialogue with him to engage. In fact, being a prophet and being a leader of God's people always means that you are interceding on behalf of the people you're leading. Let's look back. The first instance of the word prophet of Navi in the text is in Genesis 20. And Abimelech is sold, since Abraham is a prophet, he will intercede for you. So a Navi, a prophet, is one who intercedes on behalf of the people with God. How many people out there do you know who like to walk around saying, I have the gift of prophecy? Which generally means, I have the ability to tell you what I think God wants me to tell you, right? Whether or not you asked for it. And it's not always accurate and often very, sometimes it is, but sometimes it serves them more than it serves God. Well, the primary first expression of what it means to be a prophet is one who intercedes on behalf of the people with God, one who's standing in that gap, one who's trying to have that conversation. Let's think about Noah. Noah gets told by God, I'm going to wipe everybody out. You build a boat, and I'll let you be the, the next generation. Noah doesn't say, oh, please, God, don't. Noah's like, how big a boat do you want? And so he doesn't first intercede. He's not a highly renowned prophetic voice because he doesn't intercede for the people. He just builds a big boat and puts his own family on it. When God goes to Abraham and says, hey, Sodom and Gomorrah, kind of bad stuff going on there. I'm going to destroy them. What does Abraham do? He bargains. He intercedes. He says, come on, God. Let's do this. And now Moses is going to do the same thing. Samuel does it as well, by the way. Amos does it. Jeremiah does it. Um, Jesus does it. A prophet, a real prophet, intercedes on behalf of the people with God and starts to dialogue and to wrestle. And God is cueing Moses. Engage with me, Moses. Lead your people well. Stand here with me. Yes, I am angry. Yes, I have every reason to be angry. But I'm going to be cueing you to start to show the people who my true character is, what my true character is, and Moses, who you are as a leader. So he says, let me, let me destroy them, and then I'll make you into a great nation. That phrase right there, great nation, where does that come from? It's a promise. It's a promise that God makes to Abraham several times, and God makes to Isaac and to Jacob, to Israel. I will make you into a great nation. So when God says that phrase to Moses, God is cueing Moses to remember the covenant promise that God had made. Not to Moses, but to the descendants of Abraham. Is that starting to, do you see what God's doing here? It's really kind of fun. 
And Moses, though, sought the favor of the Lord. And here we, we learn about Moses and his character. And he responds, why should your anger burn against which people? Your people, God. Let me remind me and you that these are your people. And you did this. You brought them out of Egypt. And let not, just let me, let me, let not the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains, to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. And then he grabs the promise. Remember. In Hebrew, by the way, the word remember means to think upon and act. It's not like, oh, yeah, don't, yeah I forgot I had some people down there. It's, it's he remembers, God remembers, he thinks upon them, and he acts. And he says, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, God, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'll give you descendants, all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And then the Lord relented, and he did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So we start to see that in this interaction, where it feels very much like God's about to take out a group of people, that in fact God is not saying, I would love to do this. He's not a God who would love to do this. Instead, he's a God who's saying to Moses, intercede. Let me cue you, and let's start to wrestle on behalf of this people, because I know my people, and they're going to be falling away. He knows us. He knows we're going to, in our best intentions, still fall away, still make mistakes. So God cues us to intercede on behalf of his reputation. And in fact, the Bible knows that this is what's happening. In Psalm 106, verse 23, it says, God is retelling, the psalmist is retelling the story of the exodus from Israel. And he says in 23, he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. The whole of the Bible understands that Moses at this point is being cued by God to intercede on behalf of the people and that God himself is willing to listen. So when we start to talk about reputation, God's reputation in the world, I feel like God is cueing me to intercede on behalf of his reputation. So when I sit and I talk with somebody or I listen to the news or I think about um, a Richard Dawkins quote, my first thing isn't to get angry. It's to intercede on behalf of God's reputation, to find a passage in the Bible where we might go, wow, God's looking to destroy all these people, and instead sit down with somebody who is following that line of thinking and point out the Hebrew and what God is actually doing here. And then if we move forward just a little bit, it's pretty awesome we learn that God is responsive to human entreaty. Did you know that part of what this tells us is that if God is the central character of our story, then what we learn about God's character in this moment is that God really doesn't want to be destroying us. Instead, he really wants to move towards forgiveness and towards love, and he is open to our voice in this process. What kind of God is this? What kind of God is this that's starting to cue Moses to say, beg me, beg me to be compassionate, beg me to be forgiving, beg me to be loving, beg me to intercede, beg me, and I want to listen to you, and I will be moved by your request. What kind of God is moved by our request? Does that sound like a mean, grumpy, malicious, all-powerful, just wants to squash people God? So if I'm picking one of those passages that sounds the worst that it could sound, 
What we're discovering is that, in fact, God is saying, I love my people, and I want to find a way to engage. What was Moses' argument with God? How does Moses argue with God? The first thing he says is, hey, these are your people. He reminds God that these are the people of God. Israel's your chosen people. The second thing Moses does, he's like, what about your rep? What will they say about you in Egypt? Isn't that crazy? And I love that. And did you know that all of the plagues were exactly for that purpose? If you go back and you read, it's pretty amazing. Like Exodus 7, 5. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. You see, God's display of wonders was not just to free Israel. It was also to tell all of Egypt who really is God. That these Egyptian gods are not gods, but that God himself is the one and only true God. And so Moses grabs that and he says, hey, don't forget your rep. Remember your whole point of that whole Egypt plague thing was so that they would know this is the finger of God. God is at work. He's more powerful than these Egyptian gods. Moses is sitting there saying, God, what about your reputation? And if you were Moses, or if I were Moses, wouldn't we be like, hey, that whole, like, I become the great nation, that sounds awesome. Put me in, coach. But instead, Moses isn't concerned about his own reputation. He's not concerned about himself becoming a great people. He is much more concerned with God's reputation in the whole world. And he says, I want everyone to know that you are God and that the whole earth is the Lord's. That's through all of Exodus, through all of the plagues. God is sitting there saying, Egypt's supposed to know, and Moses picks up on that, and he says, what about your rep? Let's, let's make sure that they, those people all know that you're God. And then the next por- portion of Moses' argument is that he re- remembers the promises to the patriarchs. He reminds God of God's faithfulness, his covenant, his promise. So when we talk about sitting and interceding on the reputation of God, it's not simply just to say God wants to listen to our human entreaty. He loves whatever. God, I'm begging for a brand new car. Oh, okay, I can be persuaded and then just give you a brand new car. That's not what Moses is asking for. Moses is asking for the things of God. He's asking God to be fully God in his own character. That's what that human entreaty sounds like and looks like. And then the next portion that we learn from this is that if we really want others to know him, then we have to know him too. Because if we don't understand, if we don't wrestle down these passages ourselves, we don't find the most difficult passages and start to figure out who God is and how God's behaving, we're not going to be able to tell anybody that that Richard Dawkins quote is bad. Have you ever met somebody who says, oh, you know, I don't, I don't, um, I don't believe in God because the Bible is full of errors and contradictions? Okay, every time somebody said that to me and I say, could you name one? They can't. They actually don't know the argument themselves. But I also would like to say, you know, to people who are following Christ and who would pull up the Bible and say, you know, this is the very, very word of God. And I want to say, but have you wrestled with it? Do you know everything that's in it? Have you engaged with it? Or is that simply a statement of of blind faith, the way that the statement of there's, there's a whole bunch of contradictions in that is another statement of blind faith? We have to know him. And what happens just two chapters later after Exodus 32 is Exodus 34. After this whole mess and Moses comes down and he breaks the tablets and he is angry and he makes the people 
drink the dust and people die and it's all terrible. And then God says, come back up. Let's make the tablets again. And then the Lord reveals himself to Moses and he says this. The Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That is the statement of God's character in Exodus, where we would all sit there and say, God is grumpy and mean. And we grew up thinking that if we were growing up in the church. And instead, we have this beautiful passage that starts to name the character of God and these characteristics. In fact, even today, these 13 characteristics are developed in rabbinic thought. In the Second Temple period, they were being talked about. This passage here being quoted all the time and and hinted to in the rest of your Bible about the character of God. Because if you're going to say that God is mean and grumpy and angry, then we've taken this one passage and we've looked and said, God said to Moses, I'm cueing you to engage with my real character. Now I'm going to forgive all these people, even though they did this to me on our wedding night. And now I'm going to demonstrate that I'm compassionate and I'm slow to anger and that I love and I forgive. Is that amazing? I love this passage. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious one, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That is the character of God in our whole text. And I'd be remiss if I were in a bad Bible teacher if I didn't show you the next verse. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And when we read those verses, that's where we go, see, that's mean and grumpy. And then I want to point out to you, one, it says he loves thousands to a thousand generations. He keeps his covenant of love to a thousand generations. And the sins only fall on third and fourth generation. That sounds pretty compassionate to me. That sounds really loving to me because we're not even at the the thousandth generation yet. Additionally, he talks about doing this for the guilty, not the innocent. And for me, I don't know if I can believe in a God of love who isn't also a God of justice. Because I want justice for the girl who's been trafficked and is in the brothel at age 10 and is crying out to God. And I'm not sure I could believe in a God who's loving unless he has a just answer for her. And I also see, just practically speaking in life, that if parents have particular sins and practices in their life, that those consequences of that sin do fall on the generations to come. Haven't you seen that? Haven't you seen the statistics? Like if parents are alcoholic, their kids are likely to be alcoholic. If parents are divorced, the kids are likely to also experience divorce. If a parent abuses their children, then when those children grow up, they're likely to be abusers as well. Some of this is just what happens when sin enters in, and this is the natural consequence of that. But God has said, I'm slow to anger, I'm compassionate, and I want to extend my love to the thousands generation keeping my covenant of love to a thousand generations. 
So perhaps part of the issue we have when we have God's reputation on our minds and on our hearts, when we want to engage in this in our community, perhaps part of the issue is that we only focus on this verse and we don't read this one right before. Because we've been taught, I've been taught, that framework that God pre-Jesus is grumpy and God post-Jesus is really loving and wonderful. Besides the fact that that's certainly not an accurate representation of God and his great love, and this is what I want to take up from him and go, no, 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 no. Did you see how loving he's been the whole time? Have you ever read the book of Judges? It's a mess. The book of Judges is a mess. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. It's really ugly and terrible. I don't know why we teach any Sunday school stories from that book, because it's all bad. It's all really, really, really really bad. You're all going to go home and read it tonight. No, but it's really bad. But what I see also in the book of Judges is, is the people doing terrible, terrible things. And then as soon as the oppressors start to come and life gets too hard, they go, oh, we should cry out to God. And they cry out to God and God's like, oh, did you cry? And he goes, and he runs over, picks them back up and delivers them right away. They cried out to God, God delivered them. Then they went back to their evil ways. They cried out to God, God delivered them. And the whole book of Judges, I feel like, is God a pushover? I mean, really, they're just going to go back. We, we're very clear. They're only doing what's right in their own eyes. They're doing what's evil. They're not doing what's right in the eyes of God. That's the whole book. And yet God keeps running back and picking them up. But we only read the parts like, and then God handed them over. Oh, that sounds so mean and grumpy. No, God's rescuing, rescuing, rescuing. It's about those love lenses that Pastor Kevin talked about. It's about taking off maybe the lenses that we've had, now I can't see any of you, and putting them back on and starting to see the world clearly, starting to ask the question, how is the character of God consistent? If I know the character of God fully revealed through the Son, Jesus Christ, then how is that character consistently demonstrated in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and on and on and on? And it's a fun exercise. And guess what? He is consistent. And you can find it there. The other challenge with some of this paradigm shift as we talk about the reputation of God is that it's actually not an accurate reading of the New Testament to say that God there is just demonstrating love and grace and mercy all the time and there's no consequences or punishment. The New Testament talks about sin and hell more than the Old Testament does. The New Testament talks about hell a lot more than the Old Testament does. If you've read Revelation, that's kind of a heavy book. Some heavy things go down there. Jesus, in his teachings, actually places people in hell in his parables for not loving the poor, for not caring for the sick, for not... I mean, this is... This is heavy teaching. So if you're going to look at the New Testament and decide that that's only, you know, skipping through the field, holding hands with Jesus and smelling flowers, you know, then you've missed it. You've also missed the character of God pushing through there where there's real-life consequences for how we live and what we do. So, what do we do with all of this then? Well, let me tell you. We have to study. We have to study and engage with the Bible in powerful ways. We have to start to read it, to know it, and to wrestle with it, and we need to start to do that in community. So Spark is going to provide, beginning January 1st, the foundation experiment. If you've done the foundation experiment before, would you raise your hand just so people can kind of look around? All right. So these people, thank you guys, all signed up to do the foundation experiment, which is that we read through the Bible in five months, the whole Bible, in five months. We read about 10 chapters a day, six days a week. Sounds crazy already. I know you're already like tapping out, I'm out. 
How many of you guys have every January 1st rolls around and you're like, this is the year where I'm going to read the Bible all the way through? Really? And you buy that one-year Bible. I'm just talking not from personal experience at all. You buy that one-year Bible and then it has you, it staggers it and it's kind of confusing because you have a portion from the Old Testament and then a portion from the New and generally a psalm and a proverb. Have you ever done one-year Bible? Okay. So you read every year Genesis and Matthew. And then by the end of January, you've tapped out. And then the next January one comes around, like, this year I'll read through the Bible. And then you read Genesis and Matthew again, and Psalms, you know, 1 through 30, and then you're out again. And so I am also part of that pattern. That has worked. That's how it's been in my life. And I think 90% of Christians plus are in that same boat. Where we walk around and we say and pretend that we know God, we pretend we can know him enough to defend his reputation in the community, but truth is we don't know the book very well. And even the parts we know, we may not know in their context. We may know what we always have known about that part, but we may not know the fullness of the understanding. Have you ever read the Bible and you have a portion that's highlighted, circled, and starred, but when you're reading it that time, you feel like God snuck that verse back in? And it's like the first time you've ever read it. It's because it's living and active. There's always more to know. There's always more to engage with. And so we want to invite you to prayerfully consider jumping in and trying to read the Bible as a community in January. We're still looking for a space to meet in. Um, Etzchaim is packed out with activities all week long. So we can't rent additional time here. But if you know of a space, we're looking to meet on a Tuesday evening from 7 to 8 once a week where I sit and explain a cultural context for what we've been reading. And if you're thinking to yourself, there's no way I have an hour a day in my life to sit and read the Bible. That's okay. Are you in the car? Do you go to the gym? Because you can listen to it. And we have that all laid out for you. And then we also have some prerequisite reading. Okay? So if you would like to join us, then put this on your Christmas list and make somebody buy it for you ahead of Christmas. Um, Epic of Eden by Sandra Richter, which is going to help us understand the Hebrew scriptures and the cultural context for it. Even if you're not going to do foundation, I highly recommend this book. It's very easily read. Um, there's some very helpful ports, parts, parts, portions and parts in that book that help us understand the Hebrew scriptures as we read. I think one of the reasons why the reputation of God in our community is harmed, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures, is because we don't know how to read it. That culture is so far removed from us, a patriarchal Bedouin-type culture. I mean, when was the last time you were in like a Bedouin tent with three wives and one man and, you know, how that all work out, right? I mean, this is, the life of Jacob doesn't make sense to us. But this book, Epic of Eden, will help to sort some of that out so that as you read through the Bible, it'll make a bit more sense. You need to have that read and completed by January 1 because by the time January 1 hits and you're reading 10 chapters a day, you're not going to have time to read this book, Okay. By the way, those who have done it, could you just raise your hand one more time? And if you're thinking about doing it, look around and ask, if, ask those people how it was for them and did it change things. Yes? Is it, would you recommend it to everybody? Yes. Changed your relationship with God? Okay, good. So join us, if you like, with the foundation experiment beginning January. If you know of a space where we can meet, let us know. We're looking for one now. And... Um, 
Yeah, we're really excited about that. That, for me, this type of study changed my understanding of God. Even if you don't believe in God, but you would like to understand this book, this ancient text from you know, Mesopotamian culture to Canaanite culture to Babylonian culture to Hebrew culture and to Roman culture and Greek, you can sit and read with us an ancient text and you'll know more than most people who debate it by the end. Because a lot of people who debate it actually haven't read it. Some, some have. But a lot of times, part of the reason why God's reputation is harmed is because we don't really know what we're talking about. And we don't always know well the text and his character. Does that kind of make sense? One last little bit, because as we start to move from reputation of God into reconciliation. If the Christian community as a whole, for the last 2,000 years, had a better understanding of the historical and cultural context and of the Hebrew scriptures, and if we had a better understanding of the consistency of God from Genesis through Revelation, can you also imagine that that would practically play out in a healed relationship with our Jewish brothers and sisters? If we walked around with the knowledge that the God of Israel was a God, is a God that loves, that forgives, that engages, and that it's not a God of legalism, but a God of grace and mercy. Wouldn't that have changed how we treated our Jewish brothers and sisters? So when we start to talk about the reputation of God and how valuable our understanding of God is and how we need to take up for him to build his reputation in Palo Alto, to build his reputation in Silicon Valley, I wanted you to know that this isn't just head knowledge. It's not just about, oh, now I understand that passage in Exodus 32, and now it's really interesting to know that God is cueing Moses to intercede. Knowing that changes how you interact with people. It changes how God interacts with you, how you can interact with God, because you can start to see his grace and his love being poured out in the community. And it starts to heal relationships. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, thank you, Lord, so much for who you are, for the consistency of your character, for the ways in which you continue to teach us more about who you are, Lord, we thank you that you have been consistent from the beginning of time. We thank you, God, that you have poured out love and truth and grace and mercy in our lives and in the lives of your people since before time began. God, we thank you, Lord, that you continue to bring us back home, to grab us, to reach for us, to cue us to intercede, to want to build your reputation amongst the nations, amongst the people in Egypt, God. Even that's our prayer tonight, Lord, for Egypt. May your reputation be known there, that you are a God slow to anger, compassionate, loving, forgiving. A God that rescues, a God that redeems, and a God that reaches, and a God that sends his one and only son to intercede fully and forever for each one of us. So God, we bless you, Lord, that your son did intercede for us, and that your reputation was now known throughout the world as a God of love. And God, we ask that you would help us to represent you in our community as that God of love and of peace and of truth. So pour out that truth in spark. Help us to do beautiful things for you here in this building and in this city and the surrounding cities. And most of all, God, would you do something beautiful in our hearts? Would you engage and encounter us? And would you build your reputation in our hearts? And where our image of you needs to be healed, Lord, would you do that in the name of Jesus and the power of your Holy Spirit?
God, I bless each person here. Pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on them as they go. And that together we would be able to know you more and to every day discover more of who you are. Continue to make yourself known to us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.